Welcome to the 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old. It is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Mike O'Neill, a litigator with Gary Frank, LPA. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing? And Cincinnati's city solicitor, Paula Boggs-Muthing. Hi, Paula. Hello. Today we'll be discussing The, uh, the Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson, which is, to say the very least, a unique, strange, and terrifying book. San Francisco author Adam Johnson intricately researched this book. He actually traveled to North Korea, but it is it is a work of fiction. Um, and the central character, whose name is Pak John Doe, John Doe, do I have that right, guys? That's, I think that's correct. Okay. I think that's right. Um, is literally, he grew up in an orphanage. Um, it, it's a little uncertain whether or not he's actually an orphan. Um, I think at the very beginning... He is uh, claiming not to be an orphan. I don't want to give too much away for the conversation here. But essentially, he works for the state um, as a soldier trained to fight in the dark in tunnels that are being dug under, under South Korea. Later, he becomes um, a kidnapper for the North Korean government. And this all happens in the first part of the book, the biography of Jun Do. Later, he... Um, ends up on the wrong side of the state. Um, essentially, the overall plot arc of the book has to do with Jun Do um, deciding to realize his own dreams and aspirations in a country that is essentially authoritarian. Um, so the second part of the book uh, has to do with him being interrogated. It's a little complicated. Um, being inter- interrogated, actually, as another character who, whose life he comes to inhabit uh, thanks to the dictator. What am I missing here, guys? It's, it's a difficult book to parse, I think. I, would, I think you hit all the high notes. I guess the one additional really interesting um, technique the author uses is he then puts in you know, the uh, North Korean's most fascinating story of the year through the loudspeaker. And in the second half of the book, as the plot is developing... Uh, you know, as you go through the confession of Commander Ga, and you get sort of, uh, you know, almost like looking back like a year, so you get backstory, it goes to present, it bounces around different characters, and then there's almost sort of a, like a bizarre uh, propaganda story that also involves the characters that then <laughs> plays along and, and, and helps, flesh, you know, flesh out the story, as it were. You guys are legal professionals. I mean, propaganda, language, the way language is, the way reality is constructed out of language. I'm curious about your reactions to that in the book. I mean, in a way, it's very funny, some of the propaganda is, but tragic at the same time. You know, I um, while I was reading this book, um, and, and so the first time I read it was maybe a year and a half ago, I felt so paranoid. I, I, it, was, it really affected me. Um, uh, in a 
in just such an anxiety-inducing way. Um, I think that it was the interplay between the propaganda and then the actual story to kind of understand how easy it is to twist something into something that's a little bit true, um, but is the way you want it to appear to people that this perception is reality idea um, is really used by that regime um, in a way that's so devastating. Um, I, I thought that um, this author, Adam Johnson, really created um, a story that was, you know, it was like, it was almost as if using this character, um, Jindo, he was able to kind of take all the stories that he had read about people and just like put them into one person um, who, who had, you know, who obviously endured an incredible amount um, of suffering and loss and, and all of that um, in a way that is unimaginable, but, but obviously emblematic of how the regime treats their, their citizens. I had a similar experience. I just, I mean, it was such a painful book to read in some ways because you empathize with the characters, but, essentially, but you get to the second part of the book and it's just torture of the highest degree. Mm -hmm. What was the device that they used to um, essentially fine-tune? Yes, the autopilot, which um, they have this horrible section where the um, in the second half of the book there is the unnamed interrogator uh, who actually, you know, in a sense, sort of rejects the physical torture um, that his unit often employs to get confessions uh, out of people, true or not. And he, in a sense, sees himself as more as writing their biographies. But at the end, it's the same. And the only difference between what he does at the end and what the uh, the torturers used to do is they used to have this horrible section where they talk about um, uh, manually lobotomizing people. Um, which apparently is a, a common practice still over North Korea. And now the autopilot is um, a thing they hook the people up to, which sends a series of electrical shocks through their brain over the course of hours until they're functionally lobotomized and then sent to go live. And the, the interrogator believes on some idyllic, you know, communal communist farm, you know, and with a nice rolling stream. But as the main character, June Doe, says, they're probably sent to a labor camp and then, you know, they probably literally have the, dr the blood drained out of them, which is then sent back to the capital yeah. uh, as the, the chief way they kill people over there. And it was interesting that Adam Johnson's um, employment of that blood draining was, he said, actually metaphorical because the things that he read in accounts were actually more terrifying mm -hmm. and it was... Scary, scary stuff. Mm -hmm. I have to say, in this conversation, I'm re I'm remembering all of the torture that happened in the second half of the book. The first part of the book, however, you have this real sense of freedom. He's he's on a vessel that's sent to kidnap people from beaches, but it was almost like reading Melville or something. And there's that scene where they come across um, just a, a load of Nikes floating in the floating in the ocean and everybody grabs Nikes and they're all happy about it, but then they have to get rid of them before they get back to uh, North Korea. Um, and then, of course, the episode with the U.S. Navy, which was funny and heartbreaking and twisted, ultimately. What did you guys make of the first part of the book? I, um, you know, the first part of the book is so... Um, I agree with you. There, there is this interesting sense of freedom where he is—he's like special, right? He's been plucked out of um, the citizens' 
of North Korea and is sent to do these these obviously strange um, but interesting tasks. Um, the, you know, the one thing that I remember that really stuck with me is is when he kidnaps the um, the Japanese opera singer. And he says that she continues to glare at him, and um, he talks about how she knows that he was the one who decided which orphan got to eat first, or which orphan was sent to you know these different um, terrible to meet these different terrible fates, and I I think that. Um, has to be the way so many people in that country feel, um, just kind of guilt-ridden about the choices that they are constantly confronted with and constantly having to make about which child will have the meal. And, you know, that... I think that one of the interviews I read with Adam Johnson, um, he talked about um, how he was interested in all the different... all the different... Um, uh, political and um, cultural and, and militaristic aspects of North Korean life, but that he was most focused on kind of the personal, the very um, granular, you know, how people relate to one another. And um, it, I think that the first part of the book does a really good job of telling us um, how it is that all those individual people in the society are able to relate to one another. Mm -hmm. And to, to build on that, Paula, I thought... One of the most powerful parts of the book um, was with the, the character who I think you relate to the least. And I think the author does this on person. With the unnamed interrogator in the second half, he has this flashback with his father, where his father, you know, on their, their one day off, I think it's a Sunday, they're walking through the park, and they're almost doing a joke about, you know, I denounce you for, you know, having capitalistic lemonade or something like that. You know, just clearly just having some fun with like a, you know, a seven or eight-year-old boy. But then you realize how deadly serious it is in terms of, you know, if I ever have to denounce you or denounce your mother, um, you know, you always know that, you know, no matter what I'm screaming about you, I'm holding your hand softly. And this is us. And this is what, you know, this is what we are. We're a family. We'll always be a family. No matter what we have to do in order to save the majority of our family. You know, if I have to denounce your mom or she has to denounce me or you have to denounce us, you know, we'll still be a family. And I thought that was... Uh, you know, one of the most powerful parts of the book. And the other thing is, I just, uh, I kept thinking about, you know, how this is so similar to, you know, Stalinist Russia and just the uh, the positions that people have been put in, you know, and this is going on in the present day. And then you had, you know, hundreds of millions of people living with this just in the past 50 years as well. Um, uh, you know, just the the horrible decisions uh, that people and family members had to make, you know, under these regimes. You know, I guess I'm interested in knowing um, how much either of you knew about North Korea before you read this book. I mean, did you pick it up because you were interested in North Korea or maybe maybe something else? I found this title very off-putting. The, the Orphan Master's Son just did not make me want to read the book. So um, what I knew about North Korea, I had sort of taken from a few things that have circulated in the media recently. Um, there's a This American Life episode about the um, filmmaker who was abducted to North Korea and basically um, ultimately defected. But there were certainly some parallels here, um, but just very little. I think that's part of, partly why this was such an ingenious and intriguing subject is the inherent unknowability of it. As uh, Adam Johnson said in, an, in the interview at the beginning of one of the editions of this book, he could never actually um, relate to or interact with a North Korean citizen who hadn't been trained 
to interact with Americans. So then he began to create these fictional lives for them. Um, and of course, tragically here, in, I think there's a Cincinnatian right, right now who's you know um, incarcerated in North Korea. So um, that, it came to the forefront of my consciousness as I was reading the book, but very little. I don't know, Mike, did you have any? Uh, I, I don't know why, but I've always been fascinated by North Korea. I'd actually read a couple of books about it before, and um, there isn't a lot out there. I think I read the Aquariums of Pyongyang uh, a while ago, and then I had, um, you know, you read all the stuff that comes out online. Um, and But for some reason, I've always been fascinated by North Korea, sort of in the same way, I guess, I don't know if it's morbid or just I've, I was always fascinated by Russia, you know, in kind of the same way in terms of, uh, you know, just the total and complete control of an entire uh, country or culture. Yeah. Um, but, no, I don't know. For, for some reason, I have um, always found North Korea fascinating. I thought this book, um, it's funny and, you know, it's, I guess it's a little dangerous, too, because it's fiction. But it really humanized it more than anything else I'd ever read, you know, because you can always read horrible things about uh, their concentration camp system, and uh, is it called No Doc? And um, I'll just say for the record, I you know joked before, you know how many North Korean words that I've, I've literally only read. I've never had a discussion about North Korea before that I can remember. So if I'm mispronouncing all of these words, I apologize. Um, but um, uh, to answer your question, Paul, I just uh, I don't know why, but I've always been I'm just really you know deeply intrigued by North Korea. I find my, I find myself look, looking at it on Google Earth. You know, that's sort of that's one of the only ways you can look at it. But the other thing that this book, I thought, did so well is <laughs> struck this balance between tragedy and humor. And the humor itself is it's almost dangerous, and it kind of makes us look at ourselves. Um, the humor in the book is similar to sort of the, the giggles we have when we, when we read the statements of North Korean ministers like in U.S. newspapers, because the English is always really awkward and quoted verbatim. And just, it seems comical, but then if you think about it, you begin to think about it, you realize uh, this is not funny at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, and you think about the, um, the you know, uh, Kim Jong-il, um, you know, had a score of 22 on an 18-hole golf course or something like that. They release, you know, just crazy stuff like that, and you kind of chuckle, but then you, you, you forget. Yeah, I don't know if you forget, but it makes you not think about it for a moment just how truly, like, evil and twisted it is. Yeah, I mean, I think, Paula, your observation about sort of how family loyalties are split, you know, and families themselves are torn about, torn apart um, by their this loyalty that they have to have or show to the regime. Uh, it's just horrible, and there are so many parallels: Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, and this is going on right now. And it's a human rights situation, and, but people don't seem as angry about North Korea as they are about certain other things. I, I do think that um, is something that I, you know, I think about a lot, um, and certainly I've started to think about again as you know we um, were preparing for for this. Um, you know, my my oldest son, who's nine, um, was asking me about North Korea, and I was trying to explain it to him. And you know, he has really he has really simple questions like, why don't we stop it? Why don't we help those people? And it is. It is interesting to think about what is our, you know, our obligation, you know, as individuals, as a as a free society, um, to do something about what is. I mean, if you know, in 2014, the UN released that report on North Korea. It was like the first comprehensive um, report that um, 
really took all of these stories of defectors and put them into one place. And um, it is one of the most horrific and tragic um, things I've ever read. And you know, how can you, in the face of that, not take action? And yet we don't, right? We, we continue to do um, small things that, that don't seem to make a difference, really. But yeah. I, I think it is one of those kind of you know, questions that you can't, you can't help but um, ask yourself, and then you think, oh, it's too big. I, I can't do anything by myself. I'll just you know, put that aside for today. There's this um, enforced insularity to North Korea. Perhaps we feel separate enough from it, whereas, you know, the Taliban and other geopolitical situations we might feel threatened by. But um, I just think Adam Johnson is just a crazy genius. I don't know. I came to this book, actually, from his collection of uh, short stories, Fortune Smiles. Did, did, did either of you guys read mm, any of those? No. Um, I mean, the title short story is, not to get too far off topic, but just as a glimpse of how this guy's brain works, is about um, a computer science scientist who has created an artificial intelligence um, to basically deal with, help him deal with an artificial intelligence uh, based on the President of the United States to help him deal with his dying wife who is, who is obsessed with listening to Nirvana. Like, just completely different from this book. But he has this real knack for inhabiting the psychological dimension that only fiction and only literature can do so well. And I'm just, I'm interested in that because here we are in a library and people talk about how books are, you know, going out of fashion and stuff. But that's something you can't really do with, uh, you can't do you can't do it with a lot of media, and I think we were talking earlier about whether or not this was being made into a film or a show, and I'd be curious how they would manage so many so much of this book because it is yeah. in people's heads, mm -hmm. and I, I can't imagine how they could possibly capture uh, Paul. What you referenced earlier was the I think you felt like the tension or the stress while you're reading it, which I mean you feel you know in every single page, and then you know, the other thing going back to what you were saying earlier, Cedric, about the comedy. I mean. How great a writer do you have to be to make that work in a book and not have it come off just horribly? I mean, and he nailed it. I mean, it's the, the comedy in there is not, you know, it, it serves a purpose. It's funny. Uh, but, in, you know, I think in anybody, you know, in lesser hands, it'd be a disaster. It'd be like, why are you telling a joke about the, it'd be like, you know, telling a joke during, you know, like a, you know, something about the Holocaust. Uh, but he somehow manages to make the comedy, you know, in the right places. Um, and, 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 you know, I think it really helps develop the characters, too. Um, you know, sometimes they're laughing at themselves. Sometimes they don't know they're on the, in on the joke, that type of thing. And it's just, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine another author writing this book. Yeah. I've never read anything quite like it. It really is. Um, uh, the story, the way it's told, is unusual. And even when you, after you read it and you think about the title and how, you know, I am, I guess... I believed that he was the orphan master's son until I went back and read again. I thought, oh, wow, he probably isn't. You know, this is, this is another um, fiction that he's created for himself and is telling himself, you know, that, that in a way sets him apart from the other children. Um, and it, it is, it's an interesting 
um, device because I think it allows him to have some freedom with the character. Um, uh, you know, this being an orphan, it also stigmatizes him in a way throughout um, the the book in an in an already you know kind of um, strange society. Um, and uh, but I I think a lot of like his ability to create comedy inside of this has to do with. Um, how well executed the characters are. They're really complete characters. And so, you know, it's easy to see them have these moments of um, comedy uh, or, um, you know, emotions kind of spanning the gamut of emotions. Mm -hmm. This one, did this one the Pulitzer, I believe? Yeah. I think that's right. I think it did, yeah. Well when I was deserved. looking up the reviews, I think it did. Yeah. Well deserved. <laughs> What did you make of Sun Moon's character, Paula? It, it's a she's an interesting character. I mean, I I like um, how in this book her appearance is kind of it's kind of like the way you often um, see a character appear in historical fiction, right? Where it's like, oh, this like kind of far off person that all of a sudden like the main you know the the main um, character um, wife of you know, Jindo slash Commander Ga. Um, and I also think that he gave her some complexity where she, you know, I think in the first half of the book is really just like the movie star who's like, you know, the only thing you know about her, she's married to Commander Ga, she's um, a favorite of the dear leader and their rivals. And then um, to see her develop and the relationship between her and um, the new commander god develop, I think is it's a it's a great kind of love story almost in the middle of all this horror. It's really interesting. It's just so intriguing. I mean, she's this chain smoking diva who whose husbands get switched out, and somehow she manages to navigate that and eventually eventually successfully defect. Right. 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 I have to say, I was also. Um, highly amused by the, well, first the trip to Texas that they took, but then um, the great lengths of the North Korean, that the North Koreans go to to emulate that ranch in Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's so dark, too. I mean, they create this giant brand, which ultimately gets used in some pretty grim ways. Um, Mike, did you have any favorite episodes in this book? Um, I, I thought that the Texas interlude was very unusual. It was certainly the most comedic part of the book. Um, and then the horrible part is when they come back, I don't know what happened to the other guys. I guess they didn't go to the camps. So it was only, uh, you know, uh, June Doe who went. Uh, because I don't know what happened to Dr. Song, but Comrade Buck did not. Well, so didn't they say they found Buck... Um, in the in the the interrogators team had found um, someone with a with a with Commander Buck on the name tag. Someone with Buck like on his. Um, oh, do you know? I'm sorry. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like in the. So yes. Yeah, so poor Comrade Buck. He's when you when you find him again. I think he survives the trip to America and comes back because then he has to procure all the stuff, you know, for this Texas ranch. But then in his efforts to help the new Commander guy escape, they figure out his part in the plot, and then talk about making the ultimate decision, he had secured peaches that had botulism in them. And then to save his family from going to the camps, 
he has that horrible thing where he you know he gives he makes the decision to give them the peaches, but then when he's talking to the interrogators, um, both named and unnamed, about you know you know there's nothing else out there, guys. You know when your comrades go, they don't go to a retirement community. They just go and we take their blood and they they go. They pass away. Um, you know I've been doing procurements for the camps for ten years. I've the, all they need is more um, you know blood collection devices, millet and salt. I've never procured a single bandage. I've never procured any medicine, but I have procured, you know, pickaxes that a child could use. Um, and he has that horrible moment when he's there. So he actually makes the ultimate sacrifice for his, I guess, in a sense, trying to get his family out. He fails, and then he makes the decision to kill his family rather than have them be sent to the camps. Is he the one who, in interrogation, QQ, he somebody makes a deal with QQ and says, okay, I'll tell you everything. My last wish is give me some peaches. Mm-hmm. Was that him? That's He's, him. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. This is a very difficult book to describe. It's a very to people. difficult I mean, book. Yeah. It is difficult. You know, I I also thought the um, the first time that they have a discussion with Ga, um, I guess it's the second conversation they have with him, the interrogators, and the Pobiak is like in the same room, and they come over and start listening. And they, uh, you know, he's talking about people like that Mongdon um, who helped him in the camp. Mm-hmm. And somebody, one of them says, oh, was that the professor whose students all, de- you know, um, were denounced? And then there's the interrogator, that Duke Dan, who he starts talking about as like the crazy guy from the infirmary who kept screaming in the prison. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the Pubyak kind of like freaked out and said, no, no, interrogators don't go to prison. I mean, it was this like moment of, oh gosh, that is what happens to all of them. They all do end up in the camps. Yeah, the retirees don't yeah. actually go to the, the mythical beach. Wonsan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I felt I felt that the uh, for the second section of the book, Confessions of Commander God, the fact the way that the um, interrogation has been split up into two schools, and the uh, the narrator is part of the new enlightened school of interrogation, and the pubiak are the uh, the old school guys who uh, routinely just like break their hands just to demonstrate that they can t- they can do it, they can take the pain because the bones heal stronger. Exactly. Yeah, it was kind of hilarious. But then I I could only read so much in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. How about the, uh, what do you think, Cedric, of the character of the original Commander Ga? That's just a, a perfect, horrible villain. I thought he was hilarious because he, of the many genres this book navigates, he was sort of the stand-in for, like, the karate film character. Mm-hmm. He was the Taekwondo golden belt champion. He was just a horrible, horrible person, and therefore fascinating. So then uh, when John Doe has to become this character, it becomes this walk, he, he's this walking, talking character study of the guy. Um, at the same time, I, I, I found it very disorienting. I, you know, I, I think we talked about this earlier um, outside of this podcast, but just keeping track of some of the threads was, was a little trying. Mm-hmm. Um, because he has, I guess, you have John, John Doe, um, you know, finding out about uh, Commander Guy's secret li- life and the unusual latitude that he has with the regime, I think, as, um, as this national hero. But to be a national hero in, in North Korea also makes you, puts a giant target on your back also. 
he, I, I just can't imagine the amount of time that I think that it took him like five years. It took Johnson five years to write this book. But when you think about pouring over interviews of defectors, um, actually visiting North Korea, um, just what a what a what a work! Has he written any other novels, or is this it? This is, as far as I know, the only other yeah. novel. I'm trying to think. There was a book of short stories that came out before this, but I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, which has got to be as bizarre as Fourteen Smiles. There's there's just so many. I mean, I, remembering this book is like remembering nightmares. I mean, there there's. <laughs> When they're looking for the ranch, they're looking for the fake ranch where that was created to uh, basically um, humiliate the Americans. You know, the, and they're looking for that ranch because they're looking for the body of Sun Moon because they don't know that she's actually defected. But they're, it's like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom meets mm-hmm. like Stephen King or something. I, you know, I I love the book. The, I guess if I had a couple of criticisms, that would be, um, yes, there is this. This pushes the bounds of realism, but I don't think that's a legitimate criticism of this book. I think it's all part of the fun. Um, there are a number of moments in the book too where the narrator suddenly talks about sort of the power of storytelling, and when it, whenever somebody does that, that's like a big red flag to me. It's like I feel like. Wait, are we about to be sitting in an MFA class or something like that? In this book, though, I felt that it was overall fairly fairly justified. Um, I'm going to go back to a question I kind of asked you guys at the beginning, because I, I know it's come up a lot in interviews with the author. And that is, again, did you feel that this book, this work of fiction, sort of transformed the way you thought about the language that we're all permeated with? I mean, it's easy for us to look at North Korea um, for, from you know, our country and our privileged position in the world. But in a sense, we also are controlled by propaganda. I mean, did, do you find that worrisome? I guess a little bit. Um, I, um, that's interesting. I didn't, uh, I thought he, he did such a great job in terms of creating this universe in this book that was so unlike anything else I'd ever, you know, seen or really thought about. Um, that I didn't really apply a lot of it back to America at all. So that's one thing. Um, but, you know, that being said, I, I do take your point in terms of, you know, just how we use language, you know, is it an entitlement or is it a benefit being, you know, the, a classic one, um, which I'm sure Paula sometimes has to deal with in her role at the city. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, and it is a, the other thing that, you know, this book always makes me think about too in terms of these situations is you know this is happening right now you know Stalinist Russia happened you know there are people who are only in their 70s who live through that um, and it's it's never that far away when you get this this utter perversion of you know government and human nature and control um, you know that it's something you know maybe people should always read books like this no matter how uh, you know kind of difficult and weird and off-putting um, they are I agree that um, it's very, it's valuable to read books like this. I think you know it makes me think of other dystopian novels like 1984, um, and and that was really the first um, book like that of that genre that I um, had read. And I you know I think that um, it is important um, to think about how we're using language and 
um, whether or not what we're saying is actually what we mean. Um, I think that the way that he has um, put, you know, the propaganda pieces throughout the book really does illuminate that more so than if they weren't there. Um, and I think it also uh, makes me focus on um, what I hear, you know, I mean, there there certainly is that level of propaganda kind of um, from all, all sides um, in our political discourse, right? So um, it is it is interesting to to think about it in those terms and how we ourselves are are vulnerable to those same um, those same tools and that same manipulation. Yeah, and it, it really underscores the the inherent power that those who manipulate words have, um, because in a sense, the leadership of North Korea, because of the because they have managed to convince the population to use essentially this double speak, the leadership has ultimate freedom and nobody has any freedom, mm -hmm. you know? And, but that question of sort of how, I mean, in North Korea, that's essentially um, maintained by just pure fascism on one level. On another, as you're sort of, as you're sort of, I think, indicating here, there's a way in which language can get away from us and we can begin, it, it, it creeps away from us as in political discourse in the US or what have you. Paula, what do you think in terms of, when you, when you said that earlier about, you know, what could you do, it's too big a problem, that type of thing. Um, what, what do you think if you could actually, you know, sample, say, 100 people from North Korea, you know, in terms of, and I really don't know the answer to this. I'm just curious what you think about after reading this and, you know, following North Korea for a while. Um, and I'm going to mispronounce the word again. Probably the, is it the Juchi culture that they have in terms of Juchi? Um, it's the almost like a machismo and a self-reliance oh, right. that, um, uh, you know, permeates uh, North Korean culture. Um, you know, do you think they fully, like the average citizen fully realizes um, or believes, you know, just the, that their leadership and the country, you know, is in control of them and it would, we would just characterize as completely evil? Um, or do you think that they would... You know, say there are some good things, there are some bad things, there are some things that are improving, you know, that type of thing. Do you think it would be 100%? Oh, no, we're just being subjugated. These people are evil. We've got to overthrow them. In other we just words, can't. There's 1.5 million active duty soldiers. Or, you know, do you think like, no, no, we, we're, we're, we are a powerful nation. You know, we are self-reliant. Um, because, again, there's all a lot of, the, you know, most of the people who are living there now, this is all they've ever had in their entire lives is this this doublespeak, it is their only reality, probably. So you're wondering how indoctrinated sure, they yeah. are. Right, I mean, I, that is a, I think that's a really um, interesting question. Uh, it's a really interesting thing to think about because on the one hand, um, you know, the I think the tendency is to kind of take stock of where you are in life, and if you don't have anything else to compare it to, mm -hmm. right? If this is if your only comparison is what your neighbor in the next apartment has, um, then sure, I think it's it makes sense that that an individual would kind of level set against that. Um, I do think that there has been um, some. Um, 
incursions into North Korea via, you know, radio and um, some version of the internet. Pirated DVDs. So that, exactly. Yeah. So that people do have a sense that, I mean, it's not as closed as the leaders would like it to be. I think so they do have a sense of what exists on the outside um, and how uh, their, their existence um, could be, perhaps. I do think that um, it would also depend on what segment of the society you spoke to, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you spoke to the people in the prison camps, I think very clearly um, they would um, they would they would not find good in what they're um, how they're existing. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's I mean, I think people, no matter what you do to them, they it's still life still goes on, right? You mm-hmm. still have um, relationships and children and. And, and a job and, and all of that. And so, you know, and it may be in Pyongyang, it's, you know, somewhat better than it is in, um, in the rest of the countryside, or perhaps it's better in the rest of the countryside than in Pyongyang. I think um, that's a, it's a good thing to think about, though, um, just in terms of how we continue to interact with that country and how we um, kind of set our sights on, you know, if we're ever going to break that regime down and how Mm. we do that. It's a serious book. It's also a funny book. Personally, I'm recommending it to people. Are you guys recommending this book to people? I loved this book. I love this book. I thought it was really... um, Could not recommend it more highly. Very good, yes. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, um, I think we'd like to wrap things up here. I would actually like to ask you guys, just moving on, um, out of professional interest as a librarian here at the Mercantile Library, what's next on your reading list? What are you excited about? Well, I'll tell you about a book I just finished, which um, is called A Little Life. Um, have you oh, either that's you an read, enormous read this and book? Y- have you read it? I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of the author's name. Oh, Han, Han Yanagahira. Yeah, that's the name of. And that's it's his what, last name. four men. It or? is four uh, college friends and kind of their their life um, through you know whatever their 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 fifties. Um, it's I can't recommend it highly enough. It's really really good. And then I'm starting Ragtime. That's my next book, so I'm excited E-L about do- that. El Doctoro. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. The late great E.L. Doctorow. Right, it's exciting. Mike, what are you? What are you staring down the barrel of? These I days? just finished um, Waterloo by Bernard uh, Cornwell, which I only knew that there was a battle and that Napoleon lost before I started it. Absolutely fascinating book, not just about the battle, but about state of the world back in like 1815 in Europe, and uh, it really it was a page. It, was a, it sounds odd because you know how it ends. Absolute page turner. I mean, I probably read it. I was sick at the time, but I probably read it in like three or four days. And it was, it was awesome. And some of those books can be an absolute grind. I can't tell you how many times I've picked up a book about like, oh, D-Day, that'd be interesting. And then, you know, you get through like 20 pages of like diagrams and you keep forgetting the names of the beaches, the names of the, you know, the commanders. This thing reads like a page turner. It's really, really good. Um, so my next plan is to go downstairs. I try to alternate and I'll try to go find a, a good piece of fiction, something a little lighter. Maybe, maybe a spy chasing another spy or something with a private detective with a heart of gold. Well, let us know what you guys are looking for because, you know, here at the Mercantile Library, we want to buy what you guys are interested in reading. 
Um, although it's great that you're reading, Paula, something off the shelf that needs to move more. I hear that's an excellent book. It really is good. Um, I discovered a book recently. I'm kind of fascinated by this guy, Steve Almond, um, who he self-published a couple of books. Um, he's just witty as hell. So I just read a short story collection called My Life in Heavy Metal. Mm. And it just took me back to like the 80s. And I mean, <laughs> I was hardly conscious. Of, well, anyway. You have that here, right? I do. I read that. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Um, and he's known more recently for his defense of, um, what is it, uh, a fan's manifesto, his defense of um, an indictment of U.S. football. Um, I think I'm getting the title wrong here, but we have that also. Huh. I, I, I know nobody wants to think about football at this point, so uh, it's on the shelves for next year. <laughs> Well, I think that's about all the time we have. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. My name is Cedric Rose. I'm the collector here. Today's at the Mercantile Library. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests. That was Mike O'Neill and Paula Boggs-Muthing. The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to listen to us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.